Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages." As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Happy New Year. Um, Just really, just really a lot to be uh, thankful for already in this last week. Um, Find my place here in my notes. I wrote a bunch of things down. Um, One, welcome back. For those of you that are traveling, it's good to have you back. I'm thankful for you and for. All the ways that God has been working in you. I've heard stories already from many of you over this Christmas season of God really producing a lot of joy in you and a lot of gratitude in you and a lot of thanksgiving in you, which is awesome. Um, Others of you have told me that God has given you kind of renewed desires for him over this holiday season, which is something we all want to celebrate and be praying for. I got a text yesterday from a woman in our church who was trying to read more of the Bible this year, and she wanted some resources to help her with that. And I'm like, any kind of time I get a text like that, like that's a great reason to be thankful. Um, Kristen and Faye were able to go to Boston and spend time with our 
uh, church partners in Boston, Cedar Hill, Stephen and Amy, over for a few days, uh, last couple couple of weeks ago, which is awesome. And the Speggs hosted a Christmas Day lunch at their house for a lot of you that you all came over and spent some time with them and their family and ate together. And it's just, there's just a lot to be thankful for that God's doing here. And so I am already excited about this next year and what the Lord's going to do among us and in us and through us. But Luke chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 to 22 uh, is our text for this morning. You know, I remember, um, I remember the first time, maybe the only time, uh, that I ever heard my uh, great uncle Lloyd preach a sermon. Um, he was a pastor for a long time, one of the famous North Georgia Martins I've told you about. Lloyd Martin was his name. I was just a kid, you know, maybe third or fourth grade, but he was a guest preacher at my grandparents' church, Mountain View Baptist Church in Cleveland, Georgia, right there in like the Appalachian Mountains, northeast Georgia. And uh, yeah, he was guest preaching that day. And um, Uncle Lloyd was a, a big believer in not preparing for sermons. Um, like, like I'm, that's not a joke. Like, he really was a big believer in not preparing for sermons. Like, I'm gonna get, I believe the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna get up. He's going to give me what to say, and I'm just going to preach. And he probably preached the same sermon for about 40 years. Um, And what I remember, and I don't remember much about the sermon, but what I do remember um, are two things. One, uh, I remember a lot of hooping and hollering. Uh, We're in a small Baptist church in northeast Georgia, and uh, yeah, the spirit was moving through Uncle Lloyd, uh, at least from his perspective. And um, he was hooping and hollering a lot, and I remember second... A lot of very passionate pleas from him that judgment was coming, that hell was real, and that we needed to repent. And, you know, my Uncle Lloyd was, you know, kind of using the phrase that we commonly, many people commonly throw around, maybe you do too, to describe these kind of preachers. He was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You know, maybe you have experience with preachers like that. Maybe that was your pastor growing up, a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Maybe you've seen him on TV or heard him on the radio. But it's this style of preaching that focuses a lot on just passionate rhetoric around hell and around judgment and about repentance. And there's really two realities uh, when I think about hellfire and brimstone preachers that just really jump out to me when that, when that phrase is used, that hell, he's just a hellfire and brimstone preacher. One of those realities is that it's often used in a pejorative way. You know, a negative way, as an example, uh, as a stereotype for evangelical preaching. Uh, I think a good example of this is my first exposure to Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you know that name, Jonathan Edwards. If you're like me, we read his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, when I was in the 10th grade. That was my first exposure to Edwards and Puritans. I knew nothing about Puritans, knew nothing about Edwards. And so I read this sermon, and I read things like, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Or he would use a metaphor of like a spider being dangled over the fires uh, of hell. And and I read that as a 10th grader, not having read or listened to is not an option, but read any other sermons by Jonathan Edwards. And in my mind, of the thousands and thousands of sermons that Jonathan Edwards preached, in my mind, I'd already formulated my thoughts on his style of preaching. And this guy, I don't want to read more sermons from that guy. He's super judgmental. He doesn't know anything about grace and mercy. But then as I got older and read more Jonathan Edwards, I realized that this is such a caricature of who he was. 
and not a true statement of who he was. That, yeah, he did preach a very passionate sermon about hell, but he preached a lot of very passionate sermons about grace and about mercy, about the kindness of God. But that's the first thing that jumps out, is sometimes that phrase is used in a way that's not accurate of a lot of people. But then second, the second thing that strikes me about that label and preachers who would be labeled with it, uh, rightly or wrongly labeled with it, is that most of them are right. There is a hell. Judgment's coming. And apart from repentance, we face those realities. Those are true things. Now, the tone may not be what we like. The preacher may not be as winsome as we may prefer. But that preacher is preaching true realities, true things coming for those that reject Christ. You know, John the Baptist would fit the stereotype of a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You know, when we come to Luke chapter 3, remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we're on the heels of a lot of really great anticipation that Luke has been building over the last two chapters of his gospel. We've seen angels, we've heard prophecies, we've seen a virgin birth, we've seen Jesus growing and learning and maturing, and we're left wondering about Jesus, like what is going to become of this guy? Who is he? Who is he? And the same is true with John. John was also a miracle baby, born to a mother who was well past the age of childbearing. John has had an angel deliver a message about his birth to his father. John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It was prophesied that John would be a prophet of the Most High God, a prophet that Israel had not had for the last 400 years. There was much fanfare around the birth of John in the region of Judea where the end of chapter one, the people are also, also asking the question, what will this child be? Because there's been so much attention given to his birth. And here he is, Luke chapter 3, a grown man, looks like a crazy man, delivering this prophetic word to a people awaiting a Messiah. And it's a word that many of them probably were not expecting to hear. So let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> Read with me again the first two verses here, Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, <clears throat> in the wilderness. So these first two verses set us within the historical context of what's going on right here. You know, Luke is a true historian. We've talked about that. And he's rooting all the events that are about to take place in real history. They're real rulers in real geopolitical places. You know, Christianity is an historical religion. You know, it's rooted in historical events that really took place that can be verified by outside sources. I mean, go and look up these rulers. And they ruled during this time. And all of these names listed together give us an idea that the events taking place are around 27 to 28 AD. Jesus is probably about 30 years old. And amid all the heavy hitters and power brokers in this list of names I just read here from these first two verses, the word of the Lord comes to John, the son of Zechariah. 
in the wilderness. The word of the Lord doesn't come to the rulers in the high places. It doesn't come to the influencers. It doesn't come to the rich and the powerful. It comes to a nobody in the wilderness of Judea, this wilderness that was known to be a rocky, barren place, but a place often used to prepare people for the work the Lord is about to do with them. And God delights in using the lowly and the weak and the nobodies to shame the strong. And John here is serving kind of like a bridge character. You know, he's the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet, he is here pleading with his listeners to prepare themselves. That something new is coming, that a new age has dawned, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that Messiah is near. So get yourselves ready. And what's the content of his message? The content of his message, we see it here in verses 3 through 9. This is the message of John. Let me read it for us again, starting in verse 3. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the very first component of John's message is prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. Now, this block quote here in verses 4, 5, and 6 is a quote from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And it's a text that was preached to a Jewish people 700 years before Christ would ever come. And these people were under the discipline of God. They had sinned against God, and God was taking many of them out of their land into exile as punishment. But this, these words were written in the context of hope. Isaiah chapter 40 is a real big turning point in the book of Isaiah. It starts off with comfort, comfort my people. All this stuff has happened, but I'm bringing comfort. And the way Isaiah proclaims comfort is coming is through the coming one of the Lord. So prepare yourselves for him to come. And here's John proclaiming the same message. And all these metaphors in verses, three to five, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6 are metaphors for the human heart. You know, all those obstacles in your heart, we need the Lord to smooth them out. We need the proud people need to be brought low. Abased people need to be lifted up. Crooked people need to be straightened out. The Lord's coming, so prepare yourselves. And what was the primary way of preparation being put forward here? Well, second piece of John's message, repent. Repent. Verse 3, John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, you know, I've said this before, it's just a, a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change in lifestyle, a change in direction. I mean, anybody can repent. If I'm walking this way and I turn this way, that is repenting, turning around. So in a spiritual way, 
I'm walking this way spiritually. I encounter Christ. He saves me, and my life now heads in this direction towards something else, a new goal, a new aim, a new purpose. And repentance and forgiveness go hand in hand in the scriptures. Repentance is the fruit of a forgiven person. You know, before you know Christ, you are heading this way, as I just showed you, with the desires and the aspirations and the hopes of your life, and you meet Jesus, and then you're forgiven of your sin, and you're forgiven by grace through faith in him, and your trajectory, the trajectory, the purposes of your life change. They change. It's no longer about you. It's about him and his glory. You know, that's the purpose of your life now, regardless of what you're doing. It's for him to bring him honor and glory and fame, not you. And when we've truly been forgiven by Christ, our lives will be lived in a spirit of repentance. You know, Martin Luther, uh, he wrote often that Christianity is a life lived in daily repentance. Daily repentance. Yeah, we repent at the outset of our faith. We turn to Christ ultimately by his grace, by spirit, the outset of our faith. But then every day we practice the daily discipline to turn ourselves by God's grace back to Christ. The relationship has not been severed. We're not looking to repent for salvation. We are saved. But we need to remind ourselves, I've been going this way again Father, in your grace and your mercy, turn me back towards you. Fix my eyes on you. And John says, be baptized to demonstrate you've been forgiven and are repentant. So a couple quick things uh, here just about baptism that John is doing. First, this is not New Testament baptism. All right? It's not like when we baptize people in a cattle trough out here in the freezing cold. It's not that. All right, it's not, Christ has not risen from the dead yet, right? This is still in the old covenant, the old era of things. This is more like Old Testament ritual cleansing than New Testament baptism. And what I mean by that is there's a, this form of Old Testament baptism is, is preparatory. Salvation's coming, prepare your hearts, the kingdom of God is at hand. Where New Testament baptism is more proclamation. Salvation has come. I've been saved, and now I'm participating in this act to demonstrate what has already happened in my life. Salvation's coming, salvation has come, old, new. But neither practice, Old or New Testament baptism, saved anybody. Ritual cleansing didn't save you in the Old Testament. Baptism in the New Testament doesn't save you. You've been saved, therefore you are baptized. It's a foreign concept in the Old and New Testaments that any form of outward ritual carried with it salvation. Salvation was found in believing the promises of God. And the primary effect of this belief was repentance. Repentance. And John expounds on this message of repentance in verses 7 through 9. So let's read that. Verses 7 through 9. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. He's so winsome. You brood of vipers who wanted you to flee from the wrath, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Three components to John's preaching here. One, wrath is coming. Wrath is coming. He calls the crowds a brood of vipers, literally the offspring of snakes. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that snakes and serpents are not very fondly associated with things, like the devil. John's not mincing words here. From the get-go, he is confrontational. He's in their face. And his message is urgent. Verse 9, he talks about how the axe of judgment is already at the root of the tree, to chop it down and to throw it into the fire, like, like not at the branches or the trunk. When you cut off the branches and the trunk, the tree can grow back, right? The axe is at the root, the life source of the tree. What, God is, what John is saying is happening here is what's about to happen is an irreversible act. The wrath of God is coming. There's no coming back from this. The axe is at the roots, These trees, if these trees don't repent, they're about to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I think that's something that can sometimes get lost in our modern church context, at least ones I've been a part of, and that's that's the urgency of eternity. You know, last time I checked, I didn't look this morning, but the last time I checked, the death rate was one in one. Pretty confident, still the same this morning. You know, everybody dies. You know, every single person in this room, regardless of how old you are in this room, you will die, barring the return of Jesus. We'll all die. We'll all, whether it's 70, 80, 90, for some of us, maybe even 100 years of living in this, on this earth, one day we'll breathe our final breath. And I've heard it said before that, that a pastor's primary role is to get people ready to die. And I think there's some truth to that. Because you'll be dead a lot longer than you'll be alive. Now, 100 years may, may feel like a long time to us. But in the context of eternity, 100 years is just a blip. It's a vapor. It's a mist. That's why the Bible talks about our lives being a vapor like grass. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And what we do with Jesus in this life determines our eternal future. Either we believe in the merits and work of Christ and are reconciled to God forever, or we reject the merits and the work of Christ and we are separated from God forever. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. It's an either-or. You know, my brother, some of you guys know my brother, um, he pastors a small church in, in rural Mississippi. And the church that he pastors is connected to a cemetery. And many of the former church members over the last hundred plus years are buried there. And each week as the church pulls up to First Baptist Church in Olo, Mississippi, their eyes take in that cemetery. And each week, as they come in to participate in something eternal, the gathering and worship of the saints, they are reminded of their own mortality. That eternity is coming for every single one of them. That one day they may lie in that cemetery. And so the question before them and the question before us is are we ready? Are we ready? 
It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be 50 years from now, but are you ready? John's message is first, that wrath is coming for the unrepentant. Second, he says, don't be presumptuous in your external merits. Don't be presumptuous in your external merits. You know, it's interesting to identify who John's actually talking to here. He's talking to, verse 7, those who come out to be baptized. Church people. Religious people. And he's not giving this hellfire and brimstone message, if we want to use that terminology. He's not giving it to the bar hoppers and the prostitutes and the deadbeat dads. These words are for people waiting to be baptized. They're people who are putting stock in their external actions to save them rather than genuine heart change. People that had put stock in their family heritage. Well, my dad's, my father's Abraham. My parents went to church. I'm pretty good. I was raised in the church. I'm good. I know Jesus. Well, do you? You know, John's well aware, and I think we should be too, that it's very easy to be religious and still be lost. You know, we can busy ourselves with all kinds of church stuff and still have no clue who Jesus is. Like, it's not about our external actions. It's about our internal desires. You know, the question's not, are you serving, but why are you serving? It's not, are we gathering, but why are you coming? It's not, are you reading your Bible, but why? Are you reading your Bible? Why are we giving? Is it truly to honor Christ out of the overflow and gratitude of his great grace and mercy that he's bestowed upon us? Or is it just to check off all the boxes and make ourselves feel good at the end of the day? Are we trying to earn God's favor or are we resting in the favor already bestowed upon us by God in Christ Jesus? That we can... A lot of times we do these things so that we can put God in our debt. Look at what I've done for you. You owe me this. We act like he owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything. He's given us everything we need in Christ, and that was far more than we ever deserved. Simply because you're a member of this church does not necessarily mean you know Jesus. doesn't mean that. Which leads to the last factor of John's message here, and it's bear the fruits of your repentance. Bear fruits of your repentance. You know, there's two types of repentance I've seen in my time in ministry. There's true contrition, which I'll call proactive repentance. You know, it's, it's the person who sees an area of their lives that's not pleasing to God, and they hate it about themselves, and they want God to change it, so they confess their sin, and they seek help wherever help is to be found. They're proactive in their repentance. But then there's another type. It's, it's more like attrition. We can call it reactive repentance. It's someone who gets caught in something. You know, they never had any intention of stopping whatever that behavior or lifestyle was. They were just found out, and now they have to fess up. And when they do, it's less because they really want to and more because they were caught. Now, think about Aiden, my two-year-old. He is, raising a boy is not even remotely close to raising a girl. 
uh, everything's a sword, all right? Everything is a sword. And his sisters are dragons. Every sister's a dragon. Um, so sisters oftentimes get slain uh, by his swords. And most of the time, it's in the face. And so we go to time in, which is what we call it at our house. We go to time in. Aiden, you need to go apologize to your sister. Okay. And he trots out of the room, and he goes to his sister, and he says, I'm sorry, Riley. And she's like, it's okay. And they give each other a hug. And then five minutes later, sword in the face. All right? He doesn't care. He's not truly repentant. I mean, would Aiden have apologized if I didn't catch him and make him apologize? There is no chance he would have apologized to his sisters at two years old. Is he truly sorry that he hurt his sister? I mean, probably not. I'm being honest with you. Reactive repentance. You know, reactive repentance has little fight for holiness. It's only short-term remorse that, leads, that never leads to long-term change. You know, the response I have when people are caught in things in ministry that I've seen and even personal relationships, the response I now give people when they say, well, I'm, I'm sorry for what I did, I'm repentant for what I did, and my response is, we'll see. We'll see. As time will tell. But what is the fruit of repentance? Well, I think there's a lot of fruits of repentance the New Testament talks about, but John specifically mentions three in verses 10 through 14, and they all involve material possessions. So let me read, reread verses 10 through 14 here for us. And the crowds asked John, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And they said, he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So let's talk about the response of the crowds here to John's message. First response, be generous. It's commanded to them as be generous. John says to everyone standing around, everyone in the crowd, he mentions in verse 11 that they are to share out of their excess, food and clothing in particular. You know, loving one's neighbor in the Bible, Leviticus 19.18, loving one's neighbor that Jesus quotes at the second greatest commandment in the law in the New Testament. In the Old Testament in particular, it found its ultimate concrete expression in caring for the poor. That's why when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, Luke chapter 10, when he tells that parable, much of what is commended of this love of this Samaritan, uh, the love the Samaritan shows to this traveler is rooted in his sacrifice of material goods to care for this person in need. So are you generous? Am I generous? You know, how do we spend our money? What does your giving to the church look like? You know, we could broaden this to include generosity with time and energy as well. Like, are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your energy? But John here is specifically talking about our generosity with resources. I don't want to broaden it and make us feel too good about ourselves. Resources. Are we generous? I'm not talking about giving out of what's left over. Like even lost people give to charities. What makes Christian giving distinct is two things. One, it's for the glory of God, and two, it's sacrificial. It's not given out of whatever's left over. It's given out of what we have first. 
If those without Christ are generous, how much more, church, how much more should me and you be generous for those of us that know Jesus? And if you're like me, it is amazing how much trust I put in my own material security every single day. I'm ashamed oftentimes of how much I put stock in an electronic number on a screen to make me feel secure in this life. I mean, this last week, I mean, this last week, Christine and I were on a date Thursday night, and this last week, I'm just down because I'm like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? I mean, I'm out with my wife. I've got no kids right now. I should be elated, right? But all I can think about is the fear. Is the Lord going to provide? Giving weans us off of dependence upon the material and teaches us to trust the Lord. So are we generous? Are we generous? Second fruit of repentance. Be just. Justice. Be just. Verses 12 through 14, John begins to address specific occupations, and he starts with tax collectors, who, according to the practice of, of the day, would oftentimes take more and what is required for taxes to pocket extra money for themselves. Doesn't sound a lot different than today. Um, it was just an unjust practice, right? It's just an unjust practice. That was kind of a joke. Kind of a joke. Um, it was theft at the expense, oftentimes, most of the time, of the poor. Now, notice John did not say, leave your jobs, tax collectors, and find new work. He didn't say that. What he said is, do your jobs with integrity. Do them with justice. Don't take advantage of the weak. Don't take advantage of the poor. Don't cut corners. Be excellent and above board in what you do. Be just and be fair. You know, how often in the scriptures does God defend the rights of the oppressed, right? Those that are beat down. And we should too, as his people. And that begins in using our vocations, our careers, our jobs as a means to execute justice, not contribute to injustice. So work with all your might where God has placed you with the utmost integrity. Leave that workplace instilling more justice than harm. And then third, third, be content. Be content. The soldiers come, they say, what shall we do? John says, well, don't threaten and shake down people for more money. Be honest. All your lying and cheating and bullying is the fruit of of a lack of contentment. Be content with what you have. So are we content, church? Specifically, are you content with your status in life, with your income, with your house, with your car, with your 401k, if you have a 401k? Are you content, Or are we always pursuing more and more and more, sometimes at the expense of acting with integrity and right priorities? Money is not bad. Money is not bad. Money can be used in profoundly impactful, God-glorifying ways. But it's the love of money that can be the source of all kinds of evil. So do you love it too much? Do I love it too much? Do material resources occupy your thoughts and your hearts more than Christ? Are you more quick to open a bank ledger than your Bible? 
Are we bearing the fruits of repentance, church, primarily when it comes to material possessions? So the crowds, they, uh, they respond with seemingly, seemingly, genuine desires to repent. And we continue on in Luke 3, we'll begin to see how John responds to various temptations of his own. So I want to look at those real quick. You know, John's preaching stirs up much anticipation at the coming of the Messiah, right? They're waiting for him to come. That's at the heart of his message. And some even begin to question if John is the Christ. You see that there in verses 15 to 20. I mean, can you imagine that the, the character and the preaching of somebody being so great that when people begin to praise you, they begin to also place you categorically in the place of potential Messiah? You know, the temptation for self-glory and self-promotion would be strong here, would it not? But John diverts it, and he does it. He, he, when, when he's praised, he glorifies another. When praised, John glorifies another. Verse 16, look at it with me. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying a categorically different, greater, mightier one is coming that's gonna be doing categorically different, greater, mightier things than I'm doing right now. And I am not even worthy to do the most menial acts of service for him. He is so great. You know, John the Baptist, the man who Jesus would one day say, there's no one greater born of man than John the Baptist. Rather than seizing power and glory and promotion for himself, he's always pointing away. Christ. It's not about him. He must become less and Christ must become greater. Quote John chapter 1. It's never about John. It's always about Jesus. And then second, when John's threatened, he continues to be courageous. When he's threatened, he continues to be courageous. You know, John, any preaching like this is going to get in trouble with somebody, um, religious people, or government officials as is here, Herod, eventually, John calls Herod out. John starts to go after those in power, calls Herod out. Herod throws him in jail, doesn't like what John is preaching, and eventually Herod executes John for his courage to speak to power. And John did not compromise the gospel. John did not compromise the faithfulness to, of, to his message regardless of who the crowd was. And he was faithful to the truth no matter the cost. You know, he's an example of how to hold on to biblical convictions in the midst of a hostile culture. You know, we are a people of grace, church. We are, we should be. We are also a people of truth because our Christ, our Messiah, was a person of grace and truth. And we possess the message of Christ, a message of hope for the hopeless and life to the dying and worth to the valueless. We must ask the Spirit for wisdom on how to be gracious to those who are outside of Christ without Jesus, how to be gracious in interacting with them. But at the same time, we need wisdom just to not compromise on truth, the truth of the Scriptures. And that is a that's a hard dance to dance, right? Grace and truth. Sometimes we lean this way, sometimes we lean this way. Christ was perfectly in the middle. And that's what we aim for. We need to ask the Spirit to give us courage in the midst of it. And then last, as we kind of land the plane here. 
look at the obedience of Christ, the obedience of Jesus. You know, he's baptized in verses 21 and 22. See this beautiful picture of the Trinity here. Son being baptized, spirit descending, father speaking, three persons, one God. We sang about it earlier in our service. But why was Jesus baptized? You know, he didn't need to be ritually cleansed from anything. And he was sinless, right? He didn't need to be washed of anything, any mistake. Why was he here? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of all righteousness. And Matthew 3.15 says that in the baptism account of Christ. John's like, why are you coming here? I shouldn't be baptized. Baptizing you should be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus said. Jesus Christ came into the world, yes, to make atonement for our sin upon the cross, to absorb the wrath of God for the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we would not have to. That is a true statement. But in order for that sacrifice to be accepted, a spotless lamb had to be sacrificed. A lamb without blemish, a lamb that was flawless, a lamb that had no moral stain. And so Jesus, in order for his sacrifice to meet the requirements of atonement to be made, of penalty to be paid to the Lord, he had to be perfectly obedient in every aspect of the law. Perfectly. Jesus was born under the law, Galatians 4 tells us. Paul writes that. He was born under the law. What the law required, he had to do. He had to perform it, even if he personally had no sin to be cleansed of. Because Jesus was not only our substitute in death, that is true, but he fulfilled all the moral obligations of the law in life on our behalf so that we can be free from that burden and rest in the finished work of Christ for our salvation. There is nothing left for you to do to save yourself. It's all been done. The law has been kept. The law has been fulfilled. And now in Christ Jesus, the benefits of his obedience are now counted towards you before a holy God. And you see God's approval of him here. Jesus has the pleasure and approval of his Father. And this is good news for us, church. It's good news. You know, all this talk of like repentance and bearing fruit of repentance and, and not simply exercising external religious actions, but internal transformation, like it's not done from a place of earning God's favor. God's favor has been earned for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And now it's done out of thanksgiving and gratitude for what he's done. And that approval of the Father is ours now in Christ Jesus. So even when we fall short, even when we make mistakes, even when we break God's commands, even when we daily have to daily repent and turn our eyes back to God, we're not doing this, listen, we're not doing this to get back into God's good graces. You're good. In Christ Jesus, he loves you. It's like a marriage relationship. I'm married to Christine. If I make a mistake, am I still married to Christine? Yes, I am. But do I need to come to her and apologize and repent, in a sense, to make this relationship right again? Yes, I do. God is pleased with us, church. 
he may discipline us as his children to wake up because we're doing something that grieves his heart, but we're still his children, adopted into his family, and he will never put us up for adoption again. He will never disown us. He'll never abandon us. He is our Father. And because of Jesus with us, listen, because of Christ with us, he is well pleased. Some of you need to hear that right now this morning. Some of you who are followers of Jesus, you've had a couple of rough weeks or a couple of rough months, or maybe even a couple of rough years or decades even. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to hear those words, that the words once spoken to Jesus here in Luke chapter 3, with you, Jesus, my beloved son, I'm well pleased, those words are now applied to you. With you, son or daughter, in my son, I am well pleased. With you, I'm pleased. With you. I delight. You know, I thought ending our sermon today would be pretty appropriate to uh, just have a corporate prayer of repentance for us. So I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to pray over us together. I'm going to ask you just to kind of bow your heads and, and just pray this in your heart as I read it over us. And take hope in the gospel as we read this, as I read this over us, read this prayer over us. And And we're going to take communion and sing and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. O King and Father, your Son died and was raised in power. Now enable us to die in our sin, die to our sin in repentance so that we may rise to new life in him. We confess to you, Lord, though you should guide us, we inform ourselves. Though you should rule us, we control ourselves. Though you should fulfill us, we console ourselves. We think your truth too high, your will too hard, your power too remote, your love too free, but they are not. And without them, we are of all people most miserable. So now heal our confused minds with your word. Heal our divided wills with your law. Heal our troubled consciences with your love. Heal our anxious hearts with your presence, all for the sake of your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.